the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. I am John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. I want to start the show by talking about one of the really basic dynamics in American life, and that is the the, the conflict, really, between the blue states and the red states and, and how that competition is going. And it seems to me that one of the really outstanding facts, uh, not just of, of our political life these days, but really more fundamentally than that, um, in terms of demographics, in terms of culture, and, and, and really just in terms of, of, of American life, one of, one of the really basic facts is that our red states are greatly outperforming our blue states. There's a blue state model, uh, and the blue state model relies on high taxes, lots of regulation, powerful public sector unions kind of driving the whole thing forward, uh, and, and in general, highly intrusive uh, liberal government. That's the blue state model. And the red state model um, has, has, has more freedom, lower taxes, less regulation, uh, more pro-business uh, uh, orientation and and generally just a, a a a lighter hand of government in pretty much all areas of life, and it seems to me that that competition has been going on now for for a while, and the verdict is pretty much in. Uh, I, I think I think it's pretty obvious that the red state model is greatly outperforming the blue state model, and and one really simple way of looking at this is where people are moving. And we've all read about people moving from California to uh, to Colorado and from California to Texas. And um, and the same thing is true with respect to uh, states like New York and Illinois, which are seeing significant exoduses of of population. And I'm sensitive about this personally. I live in Minnesota and we're probably going to lose a congressman lose a, a seat in Congress uh, as a result of the 2020 census because our population has been slow growing compared with other states. Well, why is it slow growing? Well, it's because, you know, people are more apt to move out of Minnesota than to move into Minnesota. And the organization that I run, Center of the American Experiment, which is the uh, the think tank in Minnesota, has documented this in, in great detail in, in recent years. And, and I'm sensitive about it in part because it seems like half the people I know are moving to Nashville, Tennessee. Tennessee is an example of a state that's where the economy is booming and the state is growing and a lot of people are being attracted there uh, from from other places around the United States. Florida is another one. Uh, Florida is doing very, very well under the leadership currently of Governor uh, Ron DeSantis. And uh, here again, I'm kind of sensitive about that because an awful lot of people that I know who used to be Minnesota residents are now Florida residents. And it's not primarily the weather. It's not the weather. Uh, Minnesota hasn't gotten any colder, and Florida hasn't gotten any sunnier. Uh, 
what, what has happened is that the top rate of income tax in Minnesota has gone up to 10%, and it's still zero in, uh, in Florida. And that's what is driving a lot of that, um, that migration. So I think if you look at kind of the most basic measure of where are people moving to and where are people moving from, you, what you see is that Americans are voting with their feet, and they're a lot more apt to be moving to a red state than moving to a blue state. Now, with respect to the coronavirus, it's been interesting, too, because in general, what we've seen is that the blue states, those that tend to love government regulation, and again, my state of Minnesota is one of them, have been very heavy-handed. They have ordered draconian shutdowns. They have really brought uh, economic life and especially small business to, to a screeching halt. And in general, uh, the red states have had a lighter touch, have had uh, either no shutdown in one or two cases or shorter, less extreme uh, shutdowns that have also been uh, more uh, prone to get their schools reopened and and so forth. And so um, the uh, Committee to Unleash Prosperity, which is uh, uh, a Stephen Moore operation, I believe, uh, had this information in an email that came out just a day or two ago. And what it shows is a, a chart. And, of course, I, can't, I wish I could show the chart on the radio, but I can't, but I'll tell you about it. What the chart shows, it's very simple. It shows unemployment rates as of the end of uh, December, in uh, the, the highest and the lowest unemployment rates. And when you look at it, what you see is that the uh, 10 highest unemployment rates are all blue states. It's New Jersey, Illinois, D.C., Connecticut, Rhode Island, New York, New Mexico, Colorado, California, Nevada, Hawaii. Now, New Mexico and Colorado, you might say, are still purple. But, you know, that's a very, very uh, blue group of states. And conversely, and the unemployment rates, by the way, are high. I mean, they range from 9.3% in Hawaii and you could say, okay, Hawaii has been, uh, their tourism industry has been devastated by, by the coronavirus. Okay, fine. But the unemployment rate in California, 9.0%, 9.0. And, of course, we all have watched what's happened out there with Governor uh, Gavin Newsom. And, and those numbers are huge compared to unemployment rates in the lowest unemployment states. And the two lowest unemployment states are bright red, South Dakota and Nebraska, both at 3%. They've got unemployment rates a fraction of what we're seeing in, in the uh, blue states. Now, Vermont, which is pretty blue, comes in there at 3.1, tied with Iowa at 3.1. And then you've got Utah, Kansas, Alabama, New Hampshire, North Dakota, Arkansas, Indiana, Montana. And, and the highest of those, lowest 10 unemployment rates is just 4.4%. So, so the contrast is really, really stark. Uh, the red states have come out of the coronavirus um, shutdowns and so forth, still ongoing in many places, in far, far better shape than the blue states. And this is, this is just one barometer. It's just one indicator among many of the fact that the red state model is substantially outperforming the blue state model. And by the way, it is not the case. It is not the case that these blue states, um, okay, they may have high unemployment, but they save thousands of coronavirus deaths. I'm sure that's what some some liberal advocates would would try to claim, but that isn't true either. Uh, if you look at the states that have got the highest fatality rates associated with uh, with uh, COVID nineteen, they're blue states. The, the 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 highest the states with the highest rates include states like New York, 
and New Jersey, which I think is currently number one, Connecticut, Massachusetts. Massachusetts has a very high coronavirus uh, fatality rate. So, so that's not true either. Um, the, the, the economic losses of the blue states uh, have not uh, been incurred as a sacrifice in exchange for doing a great job on the, uh, on the coronavirus. So as we, as we look ahead now with the incoming Biden administration, I think one of the top priorities of the Biden administration is going to be to, to try to bail out the blue states. And they're going to be looking to extract enormous amounts of money in tax revenue uh, to, to make up for the economic failings of the states that have placed their bet on uh, big government. And I'll just quote here from, from the uh, email that came out from Stephen Moore's uh, Committee to Unleash Prosperity, which I think puts it bluntly, but very well. They say you'd think the progressives would be totally embarrassed that their economic model is such an unmitigated failure that they have to go hat in hand to the fast-recovering red states begging for money. Blue states like California were once the trend-setting, wealth-producing states that laid the path for the future of America. Now, progressivism has relegated them to the status of beggar states that have to go to places like Alabama and Arkansas for handouts. And that's a sad reality, but it's, but it's true. And I think one of the battles that we'll see in, in Congress over the next couple of years is the extent to which the Democrats are going to be able to extract uh, tax revenues to, to bail out their own failed jurisdictions. And, and, and as, as, uh, as these folks indicated, the, the, the real poster child here, in my view, is California. When you think about the natural resources of that state, the, the natural beauty of that state, you think about the way it was a magnet back in the 1950s and 60s. People were, were flocking to California as a land of opportunity. And it, it, it grew, it thrived, it had terrific infrastructure, it had good schools, and it was really a beacon. It was really the leader that other states looked to. Now, California is a basket case. Their infrastructure is a wreck. Uh, their schools are terrible. They have the highest poverty rate of any state in the country. It's not Mississippi. You know, it's not Louisiana. It's California. It has the highest poverty rate of any state in the United States. And the one-way U-Haul rentals out of uh, California to other states have just uh, piled up in recent years as, as people, especially middle-income people. You know, if you're rich, Silicon Valley and Hollywood, okay, fine. But the middle class people are diverting, are, are, are leaving that, that state in droves. And I think it's the ultimate repudiation of blue state policies. We'll be back with more after these messages. It was the heat of the moment. Tell if you what my heart meant. The heat of the moment. Showed in your arms. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft. And the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are joined now by Adam Mill, a lawyer specializing in labor and employment and public administration law and a contributor to The Federalist, American Greatness, and The Daily Caller. Adam, thanks for being on the program. Oh, John, thank you for, so much for having me, and thank you for all that you do. 
Well, thanks. Adam, I want to talk about your piece at American Greatness, which I think is really interesting. And the headline is, Is the Corporate Leftist Media Rewarding Riots? Tell our listeners about that. How, how is the corporate leftist media rewarding riots? Okay, so there's been a fascinating crack into the behind the scenes, what's going on between this this kind of pipeline between social justice warriors and the, the, the corporate media. And this has come about because of a guy by the name of John Sullivan. Now, John Sullivan uh, was an organizer for BLM-aligned uh, riots and, and demonstrations. In fact, he's previously been arrested for playing a role in a riot in which somebody was uh, was shot. Uh, a motorist was shot for trying to just pass through an intersection in Utah. Uh, and he's, he's given speeches denouncing Donald Trump. But somehow he found himself in with that scrum that penetrated the Capitol building in January 6th. And he, he recorded everything. And as he was recording, he recorded himself encouraging the other rioters to burn the Capitol building down, to break down doors. He even uh, recorded himself confessing to breaking up a window. Then when he's done, when he was done with the, uh, the riot, he went to several media interests, including CNN, ABC, a number of other interests, and he sold the footage of the riot, the riot that he helped direct, the, the, that he participated in, uh, that he encouraged. He sold these, uh, this footage, and he got a lot of money for it. He got $35,000 from CNN. I think he got another uh, $35,000 from another uh, major network. Uh, and, and when you put them all together, uh, it probably runs somewhere between $80,000 and over $120,000 just for his footage of himself helping to direct um, this, this uh, Capitol Hill event. Even, Adam, even let me just, let me just to... pause you for a second, Adam, if I might, to just kind of emphasize yeah. that point. So here's a guy, he's a left-wing activist, he's, he's an anti-Trump activist, he's got a violent history participating in riots, he, uh, he goes to Washington on January 6th, and, uh, and he's one of the people, you know, doing this riot that everyone tells us is being carried out by pro-Trump partisans. Certainly not true in his case. And he films himself. He films the riot. He films himself encouraging people to burn down the Capitol. And then he goes out and mainstream, allegedly mainstream news outlets like CNN and ABC pay him sums adding up to something like $80,000 to reward him for his part in this riot that they, that they all say they're so appalled by. That's, that's just astonishing. Yeah, but the story keeps getting better. Uh, so he actually, he filmed himself, one of the things he filmed himself doing was intimidating two Capitol Police officers into abandoning their posts so that the the crowd could continue past that door. So uh, after after he was done with this, uh, his brother recognized, um, got the name of um, James Sullivan, recognized him in some of these videos that uh, that were released on the news. And he turned his brother into the FBI. So finally, the FBI goes to visit him. They interview him. He admits to everything freely, uh, gives the FBI access to all the videos. And the, um, the U.S. attorney ends up indicting him for pretty much the same crimes that all these other uh, Trump supporters were indicted for. But there was an important difference. The Trump supporters were typically given either very high bail or held uh, with no bail. A number of them were just being held in prison with no way of, of getting out while they await trial. And, and it can take a year. It can take a two years to get to, to get to trial. So, you know, I mean, it's a pretty terrible sanction. But this guy, uh, John Sullivan, he was let out without any bail. He was just let out on his own recognizance. And then uh, as conditions of this freedom, this free freedom, he was told not to engage in his activities that he does for a company he founded called Insurgents USA. 
He immediately violates those restrictions. And the government comes back to court and says, um, hey, he violated his restrictions, his conditions of, of release. Uh, we want him taken into custody. The magistrate judge's reaction to this is to say, well, the restrictions are too tough. So instead of making him post a cash bond or taking him into custody, she relaxes the restrictions and says, well, you can continue getting on social media and saying what, pretty much whatever you want. You just can't organize any violent riots. But he can, you know, do he's free to do whatever whatever he wants beyond that. So, you know, there's this idea in journalist ethics that you're not supposed to pay people to create stories. But John Sullivan, uh, one of the reasons he's being allowed to do this is he's made the case to the court persuasively. He's persuaded the court of this that this is what he does. Insurgents USA, the business model is he attends these riots and these uh, these violent events. And he gathers hot footage of it, and then he sells it back to the uh, networks. Now, of course, he has an incentive to try and stir things up and make things a little bit more exciting. And that's exactly what he did in the Capitol. He, he encouraged people to commit very serious felonies. And, uh, uh, and when he was arrested, they basically just let him wait for trial without, uh, without taking him into custody. It's really, it's really an incredible story. It really is. And then, and then when he gets caught, identified and caught, he actually gets preferential treatment compared, compared with the other rioters, the ones that he was urging on. And as you say, he actually uh, helped to get others inside the Capitol building by intimidating two of the Capitol guards uh, that, were, that were guarding one of the entrances. Yeah, and I think it, it, it gives rise to the question, you know, were there other, was he alone? Was he the only one of these kind of uh, uh, moles in that group who was there to encourage these Trump supporters to take, you know, um, and I'm not excusing the Trump supporters. I mean, whoever whoever was there in the Capitol, um, you know, I mean, they're violating the law and, and committing acts of violence. And, and uh, you know, I'm not sure exactly who they were, but there was a minority of the ones who were there to protest. Uh, but it does look like they were encouraged by outside sources to include this John Sullivan guy who hated Trump. Now, why would a Trump hater encourage Trump supporters to burn down the Capitol and uh, uh, and destroy property, break break down doors? I mean, I'll leave that to your imagination to wonder why that might be. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we ever have gotten any clear accounting or understanding of who these people were uh, that were engaging in, in, in the violent acts. I mean, there were tens of thousands, if not 100,000 of pro-Trump people there, you know, peacefully demonstrating this really was a mostly peaceful protest, which is the way the, the media likes to describe riots, right? This really was mostly peaceful. But do we really have any idea? I mean, for example, the guy with the fur hat and the, and the horns, I don't you know, call, call me a cynic. Okay. I, I don't, that guy does not look like a Republican to me, but I, you know, who knows, but, but do we have any real yeah, understanding? I mean, there's, there's no, I don't think we do. There's a video of several Trump supporters basically standing there trying to get the police to go get backup. What's his name from Infowars? I mean, that that guy's kind of a wackadoodle himself, but he was he was screaming to try and you know try and stop the incursion into the Capitol uh, because I think there were some people who recognized what this was early on, which was it was going to undermine the legitimacy of you know legitimate political protest and the legitimate peaceful demonstrations by taking it taking it a step a step too far, and that's exactly what's happened. And, and now um, there are all these, you know, this Washington, D.C. has been turned into a, an armed camp with the, the military. The military is being scoured for, you know, politically unappetizing individuals. 
A uh, number of the D.C. police, the, the Capitol Police, have now been put on paid administrative leave. Some have been suspended. So it's, you know, I mean, it, there is kind of a feeling that there's a purge in the air now with as a result of the, uh, the Capitol Hill riot. All right, Adam Mill, thank you very much for being on the Dan Prof Show. We're going to go to a break and be back with more. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined now by David Rifkin, a lawyer who uh, practices appellate and constitutional law in Washington, D.C., and who served in the White House Counsel's Office and the Department of Justice under Presidents Reagan and George H.W. Bush. David, thanks for being on the program. Pleasure to be with you. David, uh, the Democrats have indicated um, their top priority in the new uh, session of Congress with, uh, with House Bill 1, H.R. 1, which has to do with what the left calls voting rights and, and, uh, and what a lot of people on the right call uh, facilitation of, uh, of voting irregularity. Let, let's start by just talking about that bill. What, what exactly is it that the Democrats are trying to do? It, in essence, leaving the merits of the exercise aside, the policy merits, it sets up essentially a, a federal election code for all elections. It applies to all Federal elections, as the bill expressly says, members of a House, senators, and presidential and vice presidential elections. But effectively, since states run integrated um, electoral systems, venues, you know, baseline registration records, et cetera, et cetera, in essence, it would regulate all state elections as well. So it totally federalizes them in a very, very prescriptive fashion. Nothing like this has ever been done. And surprise, surprise, it does it in ways that um, override most of the election integrity provisions. For example, it affirmatively prevents, bars the states from um, banning vote harvesting Vote harvesting, of course, is a procedure that is rife with fraud. Do you think I need to explain what it is? It, it basically, you know, if you were a vote harvester, you could go and help, you know, 20 or 30 or 50, however many people, fill out their mail-in ballots, and then you come in and mail it for them or bring it in for them. Um, so you cannot do that. Uh, the other thing worth emphasizing is that you could not ask, no state could ask people for any voter ID in the context of mail-in ballots. Instead, all you're required or allowed to do is to ask the person, and I'm not kidding, are you certifying that it's really you and everything is legit? So it's self-certification approach. Don't know many other spheres of life, be it you know banking, airline travel, or tax payments, where self-certification fully discharges your evidentiary burden. But I'm not voting. Yeah, I, I, David, I would love to self-certify to the IRS. <laughs> There's a reform I could get behind. <laughs> I don't think IRS would like that. 
So, David, um, let me just pause you there for a moment. And so, so what what you're saying is that this bill, HR one, uh, basically purports to make illegal uh, some of the basic things that states have done to try to assure uh, ballot integrity, like banning or limiting vote harvesting or ballot harvesting, like requiring voter ID. Uh, is that is that does does HR one address voter ID with respect to oh, in person yes. oh, voting yes. too? No, I, except I wouldn't use the word purports to make illegal. It just makes illegal. It It is a federal election code if, for all elections in the United States that is detailed as well as, not to use big words, prescriptive and proscriptive. Okay? It covers all bases. And so, and so to the extent that various states around the country have done really a good job of of, um, of regulating their election processes, of really assuring as much as you can uh, ballot integrity so that citizens can have confidence in the results of the elections. Florida is a good example, right? After 2000, Florida enacted a number of reforms, and their election system has worked very well, as it did in 2020. But basically, H.R. 1 would, would, would toss all that out the window. 100%. In fact, I would say, look, some states have done a better job than others, but uh, having looked at this 800-page uh, bill, I don't know of any state in the country, including blue states, that will be fully compliant when you've had election code. So in essence, to put it crisply, it would vitiate, override, kill, whatever you prefer, uh, all of the handiwork by all 50 states in this space. And all will be done as Congress has decreed. That's why we've only got the word federal election code. Yeah, we've only got 30 seconds left in this segment. That we're, that we're going to come back and talk more about this bill. But just briefly, David, uh, does this thing actually have a chance to pass? I, I well, chances are very high it would pass. Well, it certainly would pass in the House. So there's a real. I, I would, I would bet you it would pass. It is their dream job. It is the way to, for them to entrench themselves in power. All right, we got to run to a break, and we'll be right back after this. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We are talking with attorney David Rivkin about H.R. 1, the bill that the Democrats have introduced in this year's Congress, which uh, would essentially federalize all elections and and bring elections under a detailed uh, code that would make it illegal for states to implement basic voter security requirements, like, for example, voter ID, uh, efforts to efforts to ensure ballot integrity would now uh, not only not be required, they'd actually be illegal. It's an astonishing bill. But, David, what I want to move on to now is to talk about the constitutional framework Uh, in your in your recent article in The Wall Street Journal. You point out that that in some respects, H.R. 1 seems plainly unconstitutional. Tell us uh, why you say that. It is totally unconstitutional. Let me just begin by saying quickly that the constitutional problems are independent of the policy problems. Because let's suppose that HR1 contained the most robust 
uh, voter integrity procedures. It would still be unconstitutional, uh, at least with respect to presidential elections, because states do have a power. Some states like California specifically allow voter harvesting. So if H.R. 1 banned it, which would policy-wise be a good thing, it would still be unconstitutional. Okay, why? The Constitution uh, sharply differentiates between congressional powers relative to congressional elections, the House and the Senate presidential elections. Uh, Article 1, Section 4 provides that state legislatures shall prescribe the time, place, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives, but authorizes Congress to make or alter such regulations. Again, time, place, and manner. But then it comes to uh, presidential elections, vice presidential presidential elections. Article 2, Section 1 only gives Congress the power to determine the time of choosing the electors and the day in which they shall give their votes. Everything else is entirely up to state legislatures. The reason for it, it's not an oversight, obviously, is very profound. The founders spent a great deal of time trying to figure out how to choose uh, the president, vice president, and they specifically rejected uh, any large-scale participation by Congress, either in choosing the, on a, in a granular level the, the winning uh, candidate, okay, giving Congress really only the power to, to put its thumb on the scale if the Electoral College is tied, 12th Amendment, and to what extent Congress can micromanage for legislation the manner in which uh, the presidential electors are selected, which how zero. Zero. And the reason they've done that, I mean, if we had time, I can talk about what James Madison had to say, Charles Pinckney and other founders, but they wanted to make sure that the president is selected in ways with min that minimize congressional involvement, because otherwise the president will be a word of Congress. This issue was extensively debated, extensively debated uh, at the convention. Okay. David, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, we are the United States is, in fact, a union of states. And it really is up to each individual state to select its electors that then vote in the electoral college. And a lot of people don't realize, David, there is no constitutional right for individuals to vote in a presidential election. That is absolutely right. In fact, the language in the electors clause refers to state legislatures appointing electors. And that's how it was initially. And then eventually, over time, 50 states, uh, legislatures of all states came up with the voting mechanisms, but they can change their mind and, and go back to a direct appointment would be entirely constitutional. Again, that dramatizes the fundamental difference between congressional elections and presidential elections. The state legislatures have a unique constitutional authority uh, to deal with all issues relating to presidential elections. And as I said, the only thing that Congress can do, which it has done by statute, is set two dates. The dates uh, on which uh, the electors are chosen and shall be uniform throughout the United States and the dates in which the Electoral College votes. And that's, you know, this last year is respectively November 3rd, you know, floats a little bit depending on, you know, how many days in, the, in, the, in a given year. But uh, in, in the 2020 elections, it was January 3rd. 
excuse me, November 3rd and December 14th. That's all Congress can do. And yet this bill is replete of all sorts of detailed provisions, utterly unconstitutional. There can be no argument that supports this, no viable argument. Okay. So, David, following up on your point there that this is entirely up to the states as to how they select presidential electors, this is why uh, I'm going from memory here, but I think there are two states that most most states give all their electors to the candidate who carried that state. I think there are two states that divvy it up by congressional district. And a lot of people have wondered, what's that all about, right? But that just exemplifies the fact that it's up to the states. If all 50 decided to divide up their electoral votes by district or some other way, that's that's entirely up to them. Indeed. Again, this is a result of a considered judgment by the framers that sought to minimize congressional involvement in presidential elections, either at the strategic level in terms of prescribing the rules or at the granular level in in terms of putting the thumb on the scale, who is the winner. And the reason for it is not only, as you mentioned, the uh, federalism, which is protection of their formidable autonomy of the states that the framers believed is essential to have a ordered uh, liberty in this country, but as a matter of basic separation of powers within the federal government. Because if a president is effectively either chosen by Congress or is chosen based on the rules prescribed by Congress, then Article 2, the president, would be a word of Congress. That was something that would have but horrified the framers, and they worked very hard to ensure that it doesn't happen. David, we've got just 45 seconds left in this segment. So basically what you're saying is that as to presidential elections, H.R. 1 is blatantly unconstitutional, but probably not so as to Senate and House elections. So let's just assume uh, this. Other, my Wall Street Journal piece focuses on the presidential elections, but there are other problems. I think it's unconstitutional. Uh, as well, with regard to congressional elections, I, I have not seen a statute that is this profoundly unconstitutional for so many reasons ever. And I've seen a lot of statutes. It, All it, right, it, fascinating it, stuff. David Rivkin, thank you so much for being on the program. Pleasure. Bye bye. You can never surrender. The podcast of the show at danproffshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Democrats and liberals uh, like to claim that conservatives and Republicans are haters, right? And you heard a lot of this after... Rush Limbaugh's tragic death yesterday. Oh, Limbaugh was a hater, which, of course, nobody who ever listened to his program uh, uh, could possibly say. Uh, but, but the reality is that the hate that emanates from the left is just unbelievable. We see it every single day, and we've never seen it with the intensity of the last four years. I mean, the, the, the sheer hate that the Democrats have directed against Donald Trump is something that I think is unprecedented in the history of our republic. I don't, I don't think even the hatred that the Democrats directed against Abraham Lincoln uh, back in 1860 uh, and 61, uh, ultimately, of course, culminating in his assassination, I don't even think that was as extraordinary an outburst of hate as we have seen um, with respect to uh, President Donald Trump. 
And we saw a good example of this in a bill that the Democrats have now introduced in the in the House of Representatives. And this bill would would ban any president that has been impeached twice. Well, guess what? There's only one such person, Donald Trump, impeached twice by the Democratic uh, House of Representatives. This bill would ban any president who has been impeached twice from having any federal building or, uh, or landmark named after him and would also ban such a person from being buried in Arlington National Cemetery. And it's just extraordinary. Now, here's, here's President Trump. He's out of office. He's gone. You know, and the Democrats can't help themselves. They are, they're continuing to try to kick him around in every way possible and manifest this just extraordinary uh, hatred that they bear toward uh, Donald Trump. So, so if this bill passes, if it becomes law, there will never be a, um, you know, a Donald Trump post office or a, you know, Donald Trump memorial bridge or, or Donald Trump, uh, you know, rest stop on a federal highway. I don't know any, any, any federal uh, building or landmark uh, named after the 45th uh, president of the United States. They want to consign Trump to the dustbin of history. And in a final insult, uh, he cannot be buried in uh, Arlington National Cemetery, unlike other presidents. Now, whether this whether this passes, I don't know. Uh, and and some have argued that it would be unconstitutional as a bill of attainder. That's a point made by Harmeet Dillon, a terrific, terrific conservative lawyer. And she may well be right about that. It may be an unconstitutional bill of attainder, obviously directed against uh, only only one person. There's only one person in the world uh, that this that this bill would affect, and that person is uh, is Donald Trump. But so to me, what's significant, though, is is uh, the sheer malice that this bill manifests uh, coming from the Democratic Party. And it's not abating. Donald Trump is gone. He's down in Florida. He's out of office. And and the Democrats, nevertheless, cannot resist from uh, manifesting this crazed hatred against him as opposed to trying to uh, do the people's business. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined now by Francis Menton, the Manhattan Contrarian. Check out his website at ManhattanContrarian.com. Francis, thanks for being on the program. Uh, Thank you so much for having me, and good day to all. Francis, you've got a piece uh, at your website uh, headlined, Texas, Time to Get Rid of This Ridiculous Wind Power. And I think the ongoing disaster in, in Texas has opened a lot of people's eyes to the unreliability of, of so-called uh, green energy. It's amazing that their eyes haven't been opened before this, but I, I've been, I'm kind of involved in the climate skeptic movement, and many of those people who are my friends think that if only we could present the science and the engineering of renewable energy in a more rational way, 
we would start convincing people how ridiculous this is. And my position, uh, and recognize I was in the litigation business uh, trying to convince people of things for my whole life like you, but my position has been people will only wake up when the penetration of the unworkable things gets to the point that it starts to fail. And I would say, thankfully, we're getting there. If we if we didn't get there, it, people would never wake up. No, I think you're right, Francis. I think the light bulb goes on the first time the light bulb doesn't go on. In other words, most people, as long as every time they flip the switch, there go the lights, they don't pay much attention to these debates. As far as they're concerned, uh, the power supply is reliable. But the first time you flip the switch and the lights don't go on, or the first time you're riding in an elevator, all of a sudden the elevator stops and the lights go out because the wind stopped blowing somewhere. Uh, that's when you realize how unreliable uh, these types of energy really are. What I've been hoping for is that the jurisdictions that go craziest for renewable energy, the Californias, the New Yorks, the South Australias, the Germanys, would take the penetration so far that they would start having big failures. And there have been a few, um, but only a few so far, because the penetration isn't that far. But they would start having big failures before the United States went over the cliff. And we've now had a pretty big failure in Texas. We've had some pretty notable failures in California, uh, but it's only just begun. And it hasn't gone far enough to keep them from trying to take the United States off a cliff, which is what really concerns me. And when, when the whole United States goes down this road, it's going to be very hard to get back. And let's talk, Francis, about exactly what has, has been happening in, in Texas. Obviously, this whole thing was precipitated by a record uh, cold front, which is a little bit ironic, given all the hysteria about global warming. But, of course, the, the, the leftists have just hopped right over that, that issue. So there was this record cold front, and it did several things. Uh, the wind turbines froze up, many of them, not all, but many of them froze up and, and, and wouldn't turn. But that may have made, not made a lot of difference because the wind wasn't blowing anyway. Uh, but the other thing that happened is that a lot of natural gas uh, pipelines uh, froze up. So not only was Texas not getting wind energy, it also wasn't getting its its regular supply of natural gas. Is that, is that a, a pretty basic summary, do you think, of, of, of how this happened? Well, that's a pretty basic summary. The natural gas, there was freezing in the natural gas. And by the way, I, I'm, I'm not actually there to observe this, of course. I'm here in lovely Manhattan where it is also snowing right now. And some of the natural gas did freeze up, but uh, most of the natural gas kept working. I, I hadn't actually, when I did my blog post a few days ago, I hadn't actually found the day-by-day -day statistics on which source generated uh, how much power day-by-day -day and hour-by-hour. Hour. I've since actually managed to find that. And the natural gas uh, output in Texas fell by about 20 to 30 percent from a peak on February uh, 14 or so, Valentine's Day, until uh, the 16th as an example. So, so there's a pretty big fall there. Uh, but 
the wind energy, which is something like 40% of their capacity uh, uh, produced at a, a peak of that about less than a third at, at the most of, of what its rate of capacity was, and at times less than 1%. Less actually, actually, <laughs> actually, Francis, you're exactly right. I, you know, as you know, I run a think tank called Center of the American Experiment. We do a lot of work on energy. One of the leading experts uh, on energy, a couple of the lead, leading experts in the country on energy work for my organization. And one of them has a post at our website just this morning. It's called, the website is AmericanExperiment.org. And Mitch Rowling has this post. But the highest that, that, that wind energy ever got at any, over any hour through this whole fiasco, was 19% of its nameplate capacity, or really alleged capacity. That was the best it ever did, 19%. Of course, the worst was uh, zero. Yeah, well, I, I don't have, I, I seem to have an hour-by-hour chart that comes from the EIA, Energy Information Agency, that's a U.S. Energy Department thing, and it never shows a zero, but it does show uh, well less than 1%. <laughs> yeah, you know, I misspoke. Not quite zero, but, but he said virtually, for all practical purposes, you know, nothing. For all practical purposes, nothing. And, uh, and of course, what is the point if it isn't there when you need it? The, the rest of the time, a lot of the time, it produces excess and it drives the, it drives the market spot prices right to zero, and uh, you don't need it at all. And they don't have any ability to export it. Uh, Germany actually has come up with a thing with Poland. I don't know if you know about this, but Germany is interconnected with Poland. So that when they and they have a huge amount of wind power and their total energy capacity is almost double their peak usage because because they have so much wind and they all have to have it all backed up so that then they get huge excess and. They pay Poland to take it, believe it or not. <laughs> Poland. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but I think, I, I, I think the, but Texas doesn't have that ability because Texas has its independent grid. Right. But I think the fundamental point that needs to be made here, Francis, is that what drove this fiasco in Texas, and by the way, the, the, the water is out too. It's not only electricity. I've got a daughter who lives in Texas. Her power was out for like four days. That's now been restored as of early this morning. But she still doesn't have any water. I mean, it's, you know, it's unbelievable because water pipes have frozen. So, so to some extent, the Texas fiasco has been driven by a kind of fluky cold weather. But, but, but that's not really the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is that is that these wind turbines, the best, most efficient wind turbines, work about forty percent of the time. Most of the time, there's not enough wind blowing uh, to create electricity. Only about 40% of the time do they work. Well, what do you do the other 60% of the time? You burn natural gas. So whenever, they, whenever there's a big wind farm development, typically they'll pair it up with a natural gas uh, development. And so 60% of the time you're burning natural gas. Well, if that's the case, what do you need the wind turbines for, right? I mean, as you say, Francis, I mean, unreliable energy is really, you know, verging on the worthless. Uh, yes, worthless in terms of producing energy. However, it dr- does drive up the cost of your electricity. Uh, and, and of course, it's not that wind uh, produces 40% of the time in some predictable way. It's that it produces, and, and it doesn't produce 40% uh, all the time. 
it produces zero, and then it produces 90, and then it produces 23, and then it produces 46, and then it produces zero again. Right? And it goes around at random times. Um, so there's no possibility of using it without some kind of full backup from something else. So as a as a beginner with wind, you need a second fully redundant system of some kind to to even use it at all. So you've taken you basically have to double the capital cost of your system in order to use wind and that only gets you up to about 40% of your power from wind. And if you want to get higher than 40% of your power from wind, now what? Uh, I mean, there are there are various other possibilities. For example, you could build 10 times the amount of wind turbines. You're still going to have times when they produce zero, so you need a fully redundant system. We are talking uh, with Francis Menton, the Manhattan country. And Francis, we got to run to a break, but we're going to be back okay. with another segment uh, after these messages. All right. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show we are talking with uh, francis menton the manhattan contrarian francis before the break we were talking about the the texas um energy fiasco and the role that reliance on wind energy has has played there. And I want to shift gears now and talk about another issue that you've been writing about at the uh, Manhattan Contrarian. And that is, uh, let's just, uh, I'll just read the title of your post and you can tell us what's going on. The title of your post is More on the Stimulus. We're about to get scammed yet again on poverty. Explain, please. Well, here's what I refer to as the poverty scam. The, Fed, the federal government spends approximately at, at, uh, $800 billion and state and local governments $400 billion, so total of $1.2 trillion per year in anti-poverty programs and redistributions. Uh, the number of people said to be in poverty is in the range of 30 to 40 million, and if you divide that out, you find out that the spending is approximately 30000 dollars per person in poverty. And yet, the people don't get raised out of poverty. The poverty level is only $26,000 for a family of four. So we're spending four times the poverty level to get people out of poverty, and we never get them out of poverty. How could that possibly be? And now, hey, Francis, can I stop you there for just a moment? Because this is so interesting to me. The numbers you just gave are for the federal government. But let me just tell you that in my state of Minnesota, the state of Minnesota, not the county, not the city, the state spends an average of $30,000 in means-tested programs per person in poverty using U.S. Census Bureau numbers. So on top of the 30000 per person the feds spend, in my state, there's another 30000 per person, and there's more spending beyond that at, at the county and city levels. So, so where does it go? Not to quibble, but I did include both federal and state. It's $800 billion federal and $400 billion state, and, and your numbers might include state spending, some of which comes from the feds. But, 
but uh, but but where does it go? The answer is it actually goes to uh, low-income people, not all of whom are in poverty. So some are above the poverty level, but it mostly goes to low-income people. But it almost entirely is not counted when poverty is measured. Uh, be, and why is that? Because our official definition of poverty uh, is based on what they call cash income. So if you have a job, you get paid cash income. And certain things count as cash income, like Social Security counts as cash income. But there are 83 means-tested federal programs, and of the 83, 76 do not count. They don't count because they are either in-kind rather than cash, or they are tax credits. Oh, it's pre-tax cash income, I should say that. So, so anything that's post-tax does not count. So, so uh, and, and you start thinking about what the anti-poverty programs are, um, you'll realize that none of them count. Medicaid, that's the biggest one. It's an in-kind distribution. It doesn't count. You could doesn't matter how much you spend on Medicaid. Nobody who gets it will ever be relieved from poverty by getting it. Food stamps. It seems awfully close to cash, but it is treated as in-kind, not counted. Uh, public housing, not counted. Pell grants. Well, how about a big one? The earned income tax credit. Oh, that's post-tax. Eighty billion dollars a year, not counted. And, and there are 76 of these programs. There are clothing allowances. There are energy allowances. Every kind of in-kind program, not counted. Child tax credit, not counted. So uh, and you talk about Minnesota. Here in Manhattan, a slot in public housing, there, there are miles of waterfront public housing that you would have to pay $100,000 a year easily to rent this water-facing apartment if it was on the private market. They're, they are given away to poor people who now have, live in $100,000 a year apartments, and they are treated as being in poverty. That's just the way the counting goes. So so the, the net impact of all of that is that we, what, the, the poverty numbers are, are pretty meaningless. I mean, is that is that the takeaway? The poverty, well, that's one takeaway. That uh, The poverty numbers are completely fake. Now, when they first started with the definition of poverty back in the 60s, I, I actually think they made the definition in good faith or a semblance of good faith, trying to get a handle on what actual poverty is. But they very quickly figured out that they could pass out they could pass programs and pass out benefits and not count them and go back to the public another couple of years later and say, well, there's still all these people in poverty. We need another program and grow and grow and grow these programs and never get anybody out of poverty. And at least as measured, and, and it would be a never-ending party, and it's only getting worse. And and is it, and and based on the title of your post, it sounds like we're seeing more of the same with this. What is it? One point nine trillion dollar stimulus bill that the Democrats are promoting. Is this is this more of the same kind of misleading uh, accounting? Well, there are lots of different pieces to the stimulus bill, but what I was particularly addressing in that post was a piece of the stimulus, which they haven't put a precise number on yet, but it's between 150 and 250 billion. So maybe it's 10 or 15 percent 
of that uh, stimulus. So it's, it seems like real money to me. But anyway, that's an expansion of what's called the child tax credit, and it's been it's being promoted as as the the greatest initiative ever to fight child poverty. Anybody who knows anything about how these things are counted knows that when they pass out this $250 billion supposedly to fight child poverty, it will not be counted, and child poverty needle will not move one billionth of an inch. That's just the way it's done. So it's a total scam if the concept is we're fighting poverty. But why not, why not present an honest accounting of whether they're actually in poverty or not? Yeah, very interesting. We've got just one minute left, Francis, but I'd like to kind of bring this conversation full circle because we started out talking about the futility of so-called green energy, which just relentlessly drives up the price of electricity. If we're trying to make low-income people better off, one practical thing we might do is not double the cost of electricity uh, through foolish green energy initiatives because that's real money uh, to people who are, who are living on modest income. Well, the whole Green New Deal thing is a is uh, uh, to use a Chuck Schumer term, a dagger to the heart of uh, poor people who have high energy costs. And how it can be justified is beyond me. And when when I hear them, I, one of my blog posts that got a lot of play early on was called the the uh, Looking Glass World of um, of Climate Justice, which. Uh, which addressed the people talking about climate justice, like the poor are hurt by climate change, and the answer is to raise the price of electricity for the poor. I could never, ever figure that out. <laughs> right. All right, Francis, we got to leave it there. Thank you very much, Francis Menton, for Thank being on the you. Van Prof Show. Great to be with you. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined now by Christian Toto. Christian, thanks for being on the program. Oh, my pleasure. Christian, you've got an article at uh, Just the News, which is, uh, it relates to, to what I think is one of the most important things going on in America today, honestly, and certainly top of mind for many conservatives, and that is the, the obvious bias that is being shown against conservatives by the major social media platforms and other tech companies as well, and the question of what to do about it. Yeah, you know, I think this is something that's been on the mind of conservatives for quite some time. And maybe a few years ago, people were skeptical. Maybe people thought uh, those complaining about it were being outrageous or exaggerating claims of being shadow banned or finding their, their digital reach throttled. But it, it's, it's so obvious now. It's so, it's so clear. And, you know, in, in most of the work I do involves Hollywood. And I see celebrities saying the nastiest, meanest things possible, uh, personal attacks, uh, racially tinged comments, sexually charged comments, and they rarely, if ever, suffer any sort of big tech punishment. But uh, 
you know, heaven help you if you're right of center and you share something that does kind of goes against the group think, you'll hear about it and then maybe you won't be able to talk about it anymore. Yeah, I for one have been kicked off Twitter. You know, I, I was never real big on Twitter. I didn't devote a lot of energy to it by any means, but uh, I uh, no longer have a have a Twitter account. So, so what your your piece at Just the News really focuses on, Christian, is is the efforts that conservatives are making right now to try to level the playing field and really restore free speech uh, in in in. Um, what what has turned out in in 21st century America really to be the public square, which is these uh, social media platforms. I guess maybe the starting point is the fact that for a long time, a lot of people have talked about federal legislation, for example, revising Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act uh, as the solution, but that's just not going to happen. No, I I don't see, unless I'm missing something, any momentum on the federal level to make any sort of substantial changes that would protect the rights of conservatives to speak more freely. Uh, you know, President Biden talked and talked about unity uh, the last few weeks. Uh, it's certainly a noble, a noble sentiment, but I think one thing that could really uh, give that measure some teeth is to work on this, is to say this is an issue, this is a problem. I, you know, I don't agree with my, my ideological foes, but I think they should have the right to speak. And uh, so that's not happening. So that's where the states come in and they can kind of, uh, you know, do what they want to do, attack the issue at, at, in different measures and see if that can create something that's that's consequential. You know, it's it's I, I suspect it's a uphill battle. I, and I think there's many factors that could be weighing in against the states, including the media, which I, I think that I think reporters are going to kind of frame this in a negative light, like it's unnecessary, like it's uh, uh maybe even just whining from the right. So I think there's a real headwind there, but I also think there's a, a lot of energy on the right saying we've got to do something so that hopefully that will help. When we come back for the next segment, Christian, we're going to talk about some of the actions that are being taken at the state level. But I want to follow up first on something that you said a moment ago. I mean, are you aware of any liberals other than Tulsi Gabbard to her great credit, but are you, are you aware of anybody on the left that's really speaking out here in favor of free speech? I mean, the ACLU, for example. Well, I think the only names that jump to mind are uh, liberal uh, journalists like Glenn Greenwald and uh, I think it's Matt Taibbi. Uh, they are decidedly left of center, and they've proven it without, through their, their careers, but they talk a lot about this issue, and, and, and good for them. I mean, you know, crossing the ideological aisle and saying this isn't right, and, uh, and partly because they're being diminished as well. Glenn had to quit his own company because they wouldn't, they wouldn't publish a story he wanted to write, not because it was factually inaccurate, because it didn't fit the narrative. So he's been awakened to the problem. And uh, But we need more people like, like those two journalists. We need more people on the left to realize this is something that's unacceptable. And until we get that, I think we're in trouble. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. And you're right to credit those two guys. They really have been stalwarts in support of free speech. But also, as you point out, that's not true of the press in general. I mean, we, we are living in this strange time in which, generally speaking, reporters and editors don't appear to be in favor of free speech. It's shocking. I think if you had deposited uh, us from, you know, 1985 to today, we'd think it was science fiction. But you you see it in the tone, you see it in the coverage, you see it in the way that uh, free speech advocates are diminishing. Listen, I've covered Hollywood, and there was a movie, No Safe Spaces, a a year or two ago, and the critical community hated it. They they were aghast at it. They, They couldn't wait to slam it. And it was really just about saying, hey, we need more voices. We need more free speech. We shouldn't be clamping down at it, especially at the college level where it matters so dearly. So when I saw that, I, I knew what was happening, and it's only gotten worse. Yeah, that's right. Um, 
So, so just to frame the next segment, Christian, um, a, a number of states have begun to take action uh, at the state level to try to ensure free speech on behalf of their residents. And uh, a number of states have, have taken different approaches. And we're going to talk about, about that movement when we come back from, from this point. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are talking with Christian Toto, who, by the way, is the proprietor of a terrific website called Hollywood in Toto. You really should uh, check it out. And we're talking about the the assault on free speech that is being carried out by the major social media platforms and other tech giants of Silicon Valley. And and we're going to talk now about the actions that are being taken at the state level to try to restore freedom of speech to conservatives and and to others. Christian, talk about that a bit, if you would. Yeah, you know, I think one of the people really leading the charge is the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis. He's doing it two ways. I think he's using his bully pulpit. And I want to read a quote from him in a minute because I think that's, that, that matters as well, but also he's trying to introduce legislation that would create a daily fine for platforms that are uh, censoring political candidates. And that seems a neutral statement, but I, you know, I think what we see on these platforms is that if you're a liberal politician, you're given more leeway. And if you're a conservative politician, you better be careful what you say, or, or there may be some, uh, you know, deplatforming going on. But this is what he said. And I, I think this is important because you really, you can't tap dance around the issue in 2021. He said, these platforms have changed from neutral platforms that provided Americans with the freedom to speak to enforcers of preferred narratives. And it's very true. And I think that for years and years, Republicans would really be careful about saying that the media was biased. They, they kind of wouldn't go there. And that I think President Trump helped change that. But I also think it matters when different politicians say big tech is biased. I, you have to say it, you have to speak it, you have to scream it, because otherwise you're just kind of uh, avoiding the real issue. And it's a first step. And I know it, maybe it's a virtue signal, but it's not like uh, the governor is trying to do something with teeth. Now, in your piece at uh, Just the News, I think you say there that about 18 states have, have introduced legislation in the current uh, legislative sessions that address this problem in various ways. I know there was a bill introduced in Iowa like day before yesterday, so I don't know, maybe we're up to 19 or 20. But, but can you just kind of summarize, Christian, for our listeners, what, you know, what are some of the approaches that, that various states are taking? Well, I think they're trying to empower citizens if they are deplatformed, that they can, they can sue for damages. And, and listen, it, it isn't just, uh, you know, Mary or Joe sharing baby pictures. There are many, many people who rely on the Internet for their business. I'm a solopreneur. Uh, you know, when I produce a story on my website, I've got to share it. I've got to use different platforms to get it out there. Otherwise, it's not going to have the reach and I'm not going to get the revenue. So, I mean, how many people have plumbing businesses or other, uh, you know, small businesses that are operating, or maybe they want to run for office. Maybe they're looking at the local school board and maybe they may be diminished by, by social media while they're, the people they're running against are, you know, have carte blanche. So that's why it matters. So I, I think that's one of the key things that we need to kind of, you know, if we can kind of punish the, the platforms on a specific level, they may be fearful and think, oh my goodness, you know, what if more states jump in? What if this starts to impact our bottom line? And also these cases may get a lot of media attention, and that's a problem too for them. Yeah, so so some states I think have couched statutes in terms of anti-censorship, and, and that may work. Uh, there's a problem there because 
as as people keep telling us over the last year or two, private companies do have the right to censor as a as a general principle, uh, and that that's that's true. Uh, the statute here in Minnesota, which which I had a hand in in drafting, is couched in terms of anti discrimination. So what it does is to ban social media media platforms from discriminating against users or particular user content on, on the basis of race, sex, religion, or political orientation. It provides $50,000 in statutory damages plus attorney's fees for each violation. What do you think about that approach, Christian? Um, I, I, it's, it's hopefully a, a wise way to move forward, and I think it's a kind of measure that can appeal across the aisle where people say, well, that, that well, that certainly doesn't sound fair, and that sounds like something that we should all embrace. You know, for all the talk of diversity, I think diversity of uh, thought is often shoved aside, and maybe this will kind of, you know, right that wrong. So hopefully that's a more a more um, effective way to kind of go there. But I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I feel so nebulous. Listen, when this conversation starts, it's conservatives saying, well, you know, these are private companies. They can do what they want, or companies have the right to censor. But, you know, the, the, the sway they have over the culture is monumental. It cannot be overstated. And uh, if someone is unable to speak on Facebook or Twitter, they're diminished as a citizen in a way. And, it's, and that sounds crazy, but think, think it through. And, and even if it's just I can no longer share my thoughts on the political process on these major platforms, but my neighbor can. You know, that that's significant. It, it, it really is, Christian. I want to follow up, too, on, on a comment that you made um, a few minutes ago about preferred narratives. And you're absolutely right. You know, these social media platforms have determined what they think is, it's not the truth so much, it's the narrative. And if you're if you're with the narrative, you can say anything. You can say the most violent, awful, disgusting things. It's okay. You're with the narrative. If you're not with the narrative, you're in trouble. And so, I, it, mostly we see that in the political realm with discrimination against conservatives. But 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 there's also, for example, what we've seen with COVID nineteen, where where uh, platforms like YouTube have have banned anybody from saying anything that's not consistent with the current recommendations of the CDC and the World Health Organization. Of course, those recommendations have changed repeatedly. But this is an appalling example to me of of suppressing free speech exactly at a time when 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 vigorous debate is most needed. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, Dr. Drew Pinsky has talked about this. He's been asking different doctors their opinions, trying to kind of suss out more information about COVID-19. And he was recently briefly taken down from YouTube for that reason. They they determined that some of the doctors he was speaking to maybe didn't align with that group thing. But, you know, the COVID, the pandemic is a perfect example of we need more information, not less. We need more debate, not less. And we don't know all the facts. We know more today than we did a year ago, but we're still learning. And when you kind of shut things down, then we learn less. And who is, you know, there, there's some YouTube tech guy or gal. Does he or she know more than Dr. Pinsky? who's been, you know, studying medicine for 30, 40 years. I, I mean, it, it's, it's arrogance for one thing, but the next, you know, Andrew Breitbart, I, I, I miss him all the time and I wish he, he could be here to, to help us in the culture, but he talked all about narrative and narrative is one of the most significant, significant words you can possibly think about when it comes to the culture, the media, the, the news we consume. It, it, it's, it's vital to understand how it works and how it's uh, abused. Yeah, and I think I think COVID-19 is a great example because here's a brand new virus, a novel virus. And at the beginning, we knew virtually nothing about it, right? And if there's ever a time when you got to have, you know, open debate, multiple viewpoints, let's get some facts out there, you know, this would be it. And yet that's exactly what these 
uh, platforms tried to suppress. Christian Toto, thank you so much for being uh, on the program. And the website, again, is Hollywood in Toto. It's a terrific site focusing mostly on on culture and on on, uh, the entertainment industry. Uh, And I recommend that you check it out. We'll be right back with more after this. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof program. You know, one of the basic issues that divide Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and liberals, is the attitude toward China. And I think Donald Trump opened a lot of people's eyes, including mine to the reality of the competition and the rivalry that we have going with China and have had going for a number of years, although it seems now with hindsight like they knew they had a rivalry with us going on, and we didn't, or at least we acted like we didn't. I think a lot of Americans were kind of oblivious to what was really happening there. And so in Donald Trump, we had a president who really stood up against the Chinese Communist Party uh, and on behalf of the American people. And now in Joe Biden, we really have the Manchurian candidate. I mean, there couldn't possibly have been anyone in America that the Chinese communists would rather see as president than Joe Biden. He's got of appeasement and collaboration when it comes to the Chinese Communist Party. But this was carried to a really extreme and I think revealing degree earlier this week. It was it was Tuesday evening. He was doing that CNN town hall, which was interesting in a number of ways. But he was asked about China, and he was asked if he was going to be pushing back against the Chinese Communist Party, uh, uh, violating the agreement that they made uh, with respect to Hong Kong and and suppressing all freedom in in Hong Kong, uh, putting increasing pressure on Taiwan, and most of all, putting a million or more Uyghurs, this is an Islamic minority group in in China, a million or more Uyghurs in concentration camps. And just recently, drone footage emerged of a big, big group of of Uyghurs and blindfolded, as I recall, on their knees, you know, being guarded and waiting for for transportation uh, via train, I I think was was the context to, you know, to a concentration camp. I mean, Amazing stuff. And so and so Joe Biden has asked, hey, are, are you going to try to push back on this? And the answer is no. The answer is no. He says, I point out to Chinese President Xi, no American president can be sustained as a president if he doesn't reflect the values of the United States. And so the idea that I'm not going to speak out against what he's doing in Hong Kong, what he's doing with the Uyghurs in Western mountains of China and Taiwan, trying to uh, end the one China policy by making it forceful, Xi gets it. You know, Z gets it. And then he says, culturally, there are different norms that each country and their leaders are expected to follow. So in Joe Biden's eyes, um, suppressing Hong Kong, contrary to the agreement that was made uh, when the British pulled out, trying to uh, destroy Taiwan, bring it back into the Chinese communist orbit and putting a million Uyghurs in concentration camps. That is just different norms that the Chinese have compared with, uh, with us Americans, and they are not going to be allowed to disrupt getting back to business as it was before Donald Trump came along. And what that means is uh, 
trade relations that are tremendously advantageous to the Chinese, not so advantageous to us, and turning a blind eye as the Chinese ramp up their military military forces and exert greater and greater pressure on neighbors in Asia. That, I think, is what we can expect from the incoming Biden administration. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined now by Don Boudreau, American economist, author, professor, and co-director of the program on the American economy and globalization at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Don, thanks for being on the program. Always a pleasure. I want to start, Don, by talking about a, a recent piece that, that you have got um, at the um, American Institute for Economic Research. And, and, and you talk about something that's frustrated me for a long time, and that is the ongoing public affection for price fixing. Uh, talk yeah. about that a little, if you would. Well, yeah, so, so consumers, of course, pref- would prefer to pay lower prices and higher prices. Workers, of course, would prefer to get paid higher wages than lower wages. And so there's this magical thinking that's long been prevalent among economically uninformed people, and that is, okay, well, we could, the problem is easy to solve. We could just have the government forcibly keep prices down for consumers and forcibly raise the, the wage for low-pay workers in the form of the minimum wage. And, and uh, these policies take no cognizance of the role that prices play and, 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 and what determines prices. Prices reflect the availability of various goods and services relative to the demand for those goods and services. And, and that reality is not changed if government says, hey, uh, you can't charge a price for propane gas higher than this amount. You can't charge, you can't pay workers less than this amount for a certain kind of, kind of labor. What the consequence of a price ceiling is, is a shortage. I, I don't know how many of your listeners are old enough to remember. Unfortunately, I am the 1970s experience in the United States with nationwide price controls on on energy. And, uh, you know, whenever there was any kind of disruption because of uh, turmoil in the Middle East of oil supplies, uh, because the prices of gasoline and fuel oil and natural gas in the U.S. were kept artificially low by the government, uh, shortages emerged. And so I can remember as a young man waiting many times in long lines to buy gasoline. And sometimes I didn't get it. And so the, my, my family and I, we were I was in college at the time uh, in, in the later 70s, and we were literally worried about not being able to buy gasoline. And, and, and that's what happens with price control. And people predicted, by the way, they predicted because Ronald Reagan won in 1980. And part of it was because of the awful experience Americans were having with these with these gasoline shortages. Uh, people and Ronald Reagan said, look, I'm going to get rid of the price controls. And he said, oh, I see how silly he is. Uh, when that happens, prices of gasoline are going to skyrocket. And, uh, and what happened, of course, is as soon as the price controls were lifted, in, in early 1981, the price of gasoline did spike a little bit, but then it started com- coming down and down and down and down and down. You subtract taxes today, it's almost it, it's it's near a historic low. 
Hey, Don, can I just can I pause you for a, can I yeah. pause you for a moment there? I just want to amplify one thing you just said. When when Reagan took off those price controls on uh, on on gas, a lot of newspapers started putting a daily item in the paper showing the rising price of gasoline because price controls have been taken off. Right, price rising, rising. Well, what happened, of course, is that incentivized production of more gasoline exactly. and the price dropped like a stone. And as soon as the price exactly. stopped, started dropping, those same newspapers all quietly uh, stopped reporting the daily uh, price of gasoline. It, it, exactly. It, the pattern when Reagan eliminated the price controls on, on energy, exactly what basic economics predicts. Of course, you're going to get an immediate spike. It's going to happen for a short while. And then, as you said, producers will be incited to explore for more and produce more. And, and, and with that increases supplies, and that's what happened. And prices of gasoline began, began to fall. Um, and so, uh, and so you, you, can't, you can't change reality by telling people they can't pay a certain price for certain things. Minimum wages are the opposite. They're price floor. And this is a contentious debate among economists. People want to believe that it's so easy to solve poverty or so easy to solve the problems of low-paid workers simply by the government mandating that they'll get higher wages. Well, you can't make someone worth more to an employer than that person is worth. And so if the minimum wage is imposed and the employers cannot produce an amount of output per hour that's at least equal to the, to the mandated minimum wage, that person loses a job or the job becomes a lot more onerous for that person. And we, we see this over and over again in the data. Uh, but people just don't want to believe it. You can find you know, some studies that say, oh, no, 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 the minimum wage doesn't cause unemployment. I think these studies are, are weak, um, and, and they're not in a majority of the studies. But because these are the ones that are so politically popular, these are the ones that the press and mainstream media and politicians latch onto when they want to justify a policy of literally pricing the least skilled workers out of the labor market in the name of helping the least skilled workers. And people will say, oh, but you can't live on a minimum wage. First of all, most minimum wage workers are teenagers living at home in middle-class families. Uh, secondly, uh, uh, yes, a minimum wage income annually is very low. But you know it's an even lower income? Zero. And that's the income that unemployed people earn. Yeah, one of the really sad things about the, about if the minimum wage, if you raise it too high, if you keep it below what what entry level workers are actually getting paid in a particular area it doesn't probably do any harm but as soon as you raise it above that now you're starting to unemploy people and as you say the people who work for minimum wage you see this in fast food restaurants they're mostly teenagers and retired people you know making a few bucks yes. to supplement their incomes yes. and and, and yes. one of the cruelest things that we can do is to drive those young people out of the labor market because those yes. minimum wage jobs that are often taken by teenagers that's where a lot of young people learn the basic skills of how to get a job, keep a job, serve customers, show up on time, et cetera. And driving them out of the labor force at that age is really doing them a disservice. That's such an important point, John, because a lot of people think that the debate is couched in terms of income gained and income lost. Well, of course, income for these workers is important, but for a lot of these workers, I would venture to say most of these workers, the single most important thing they get is not the relatively small incomes they earn, but the the experience of working. They get they get the opportunity to to to, to enter the job market. They now have employers who can write uh, letters of reference for them, uh, and and so it, that's a main avenue for gaining experience and improving your skills and making yourself more valuable 
to employers down the road. And so when a, when a young person loses a job because of the minimum wage, not just the current income that's lost, it's the very valuable job experience that's also lost. You know, if I could just tell a quick story here, Don, uh, I run a think tank in Minnesota, and I've got an economist who works for that think tank who grew up in England. He grew up in Sheffield specifically. And he talks and he writes about the fact that as a teenager, he had a very low-paid job in a pizza shop in a Sheffield, UK. But he says that much of what he knows about life, you know, he learned working in that pizza shop. You know, that's yeah. where the foundation for, for going on to, you know, much bigger and better things. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, uh, and but the people who support minimum wages, they, they just ignore all this. And they just they just imagine that employers are going to say, oh, well, now I have to pay my workers more. So let me just pay them more. And that's the end of the story. Or or they say, well, OK, we'll just pass it along in, in terms of price hikes to buyers. But then that but that's illogical, because if employ if, if firms, restaurants and retailers are raising their prices in order to cover the higher minimum wage, that makes their products less attractive for consumers to buy. So they need less labor if they're selling fewer products. So there's no way you cannot get around it. The minimum wage damages most of the very workers that it is ostensibly meant to help. It is a, a, a cruel policy masquerading as a humane one. Don, we've got just a minute and a half left in this segment, but I want to make one more point or get your thoughts on one more point. It seems to me that a federal minimum wage is the worst possible kind of, uh, of, of, uh, of minimum wage because it's one size fits all. And, and, $15 in Manhattan is not the same thing as $15 in rural Oklahoma. That's right. Look, there's no question that it would be better compared to a federal minimum wage to have, to have minimum wages, if we're going to have them, set at the state, or even better than that, the local level. But, but, but that same logic tells me the actual ideal minimum wage is one set at the individual worker level. Let each individual worker uh, uh, decide whether or not a particular job is worth accepting. There's only there's only one appropriate minimum wage, and that is and, and, and that is whatever is the wage that a particular individual, uh, John or Susie or Sally or Sarah, chooses to uh, 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 below which that person will not work. And so, yes, I would prefer if we're going to have legislative minimum wages that they be state or even better local. But I prefer to have no minimum wage legislation whatsoever. You know, it's interesting. Back in the 1980s, uh, both the New York Times and the Washington Post published yep. editorials where they said that really the minimum wage should be zero because they understood yep. the, the very points that you've been making, Don. And yet somehow that learning has been lost in the intervening years. And they've, gone, they've, they've, they've certainly retreated back into ignorance, yep. All right, we're going to run to a break, and we will be back with more with uh, Don Boudreaux when we return. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're talking with economist Don Boudreaux. And, and Donald, in the first segment, we were talking about the, uh, the minimum wage I want to move on and, and uh, talk about another uh, piece that you have also at the American Institute for Economic Research, 
uh, that I couldn't agree with more. I'll just start by saying that. And this is Thank your you. piece about, about COVID-19 and the rationality or lack thereof of our collective response to that disease. Yeah, I feel like for the past several months, as if I occupy an alternative universe from many people, including many friends, who seem to think that COVID is a categorically unique, devastating existential threat to humanity. I think it is a very severe disease, particularly if you're old or compromised, but I don't see COVID as being remotely, remotely uh, as dangerous as it would have to be in order to justify the widespread hysteria. I think the reaction has been wholly disproportionate and extreme and the cost that we're paying. And I'm not just talking about or even mainly monetary costs. I'm talking about costs in terms of foregone health care and other fronts. I'm talking about the, the, the social disruptions. I'm talking about just the, 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 the severing of personal connections that occur under these lockdowns. I think these costs are vastly in excess of the cost of the pathogen itself. I totally agree with that. And I would also point out, I know that in Minnesota, where I live, the median age of death, where COVID is one of the things listed on the death certificate, doesn't necessarily mean it was the cause of death. But the median age is 83, which is several years in excess of life expectancy in this state. And and that's a relevant fact, Don. I mean, it's ridiculous not to take into account who are the victims of this disease. And it seems to me that what we have done to devastate the lives of our young people is just is just a crime uh, in in the context of of who it is that this disease really affects. I don't know if it'll ever happen. I agree completely. I don't know if it'll ever happen. Uh, but when the definitive history of 2020 and 2021 uh, is written, uh, if humanity is still uh, rational, I think it, this will go down as one of the greatest self-inflicted wounds humanity wounds humanity has ever inflicted on itself you know maybe you know rivaled only by you know some shooting wars but this is just it, it's just insane there's just no justification for this hysteria uh, the media though tell comp- the mainstream media tell a completely one-sided story they never give for they very seldom give the fact the very relevant fact that you just mentioned and that is the main victims of covid are very old and elderly people and most of those most of those have have which happens when you're old they have uh comorbidities too so if you're 85 and you happen to not have any other comorbidity you're actually not at that much of, of a risk you're more risk of, than a 25 year old but it's the age and the comorbidities that 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 you know it's well, sort of the comorbidities that rise with age that make you that make you vulnerable and and so we are we are this disease is shaving off a few months maybe a couple of years in some cases, of lies from, from some people. That's sad, but it does not justify this disproportionate, complete sledgehammering of society that's going on now. You know, Don, I get the feeling sometimes that there are, there are people out there who are just now waking up to the fact of mortality, you know, like as if, as know, if it weren't for COVID-19, you were going to live forever. I mean, I think I my know. attitude is, is the same as yours. I mean, I'm going to die someday. I know that. And, and I could die of a disease. It's possible COVID-19 could kill me. I don't think it will, but if, yeah, it's, it's possible. Yeah. But so what? I mean, I, I, you see these people 
Uh, and of course, the classic that, that people point out, and it's absolutely true, you know, the person driving in a car by himself or herself wearing a mask. I mean, it's crazy. You know, the level it's of crazy. hysteria that we're seeing is just unbelievable. I agree with you. It, it, it is as if humanity just really just discovered that death is inevitable. <laughs> there, there was, I, I was watching a clip of a BBC interview with one of the few really great British MPs on this matter, a guy named Charles Walker. He's, he's excellent. And the interview is, is sort of astonished that, that this British MP uh, uh, wants us to be more rational about, about COVID. And, the, and, the, and the, the, the interviewer says, so is, you know, in a British accent, of course, are you telling us that humanity has to learn to live with a certain amount of death? <laughs> and this guy's kind of, he says, of course. I mean, you know, yeah, and the certain amount is 100% too, right? Yes. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the, the very fact that this guy would say this on, 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 on you know, in, in a prominent, you know, in a civilized modern country is astonishing. And so I'm, I'm, almost, I'm almost thinking that there, there's a really serious pathogen that's out there. It's not so much COVID. 19, the coronavirus itself, it's some as yet undiagnosed pathogen that's gotten into a lot of people's brains that stopped critical functioning from working. It's terrible. You know, in, starting in what was it, 1347, I think, uh, Europe was devastated by the Black yep. Death. And, and, and historians now estimate that the Black Death may have killed 50% of the population of Europe. And it wasn't those 85 and up. I mean, you know, it killed everybody, and it literally killed about half the population of the continent. Uh, one of the worst catastrophes in, in human history. Uh, but, you know, we are treating COVID-19 like it was the Black Death. You know, I mean, if you were looking at that kind of, a, of an epidemic, you know, some of these measures would be rational. But this is a disease that is a little bit more lethal than a typical seasonal flu, probably several times as lethal as a typical seasonal flu, but that is survived by the overwhelming majority of, of those who contract it. Yeah, I saw an estimate the other day. I don't, I don't know how, I guess you can nitpick at it, but I think it's the University of Maryland, I think, estimated that COVID, not age-adjusted, just generally, COVID is 3.5 times uh, more lethal than the seasonal flu. All right, so that's significant. But has our reaction to COVID been 3.5 times more severe than, our, than our, the steps we take in response to the seasonal flu? No, it's been thousands, tens of thousands of times worse. What do we do with respect to the seasonal flu? Well, some of us take flu shots. We stay home and we're sick. Some of us die every year and, 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 and we're buried. And, you know, but our funeral, people who die from flu, their funerals aren't filmed and, and shown sensationally on television. Um, and, and so, yes, it is, it is, it's a serious disease. COVID is in the same way that the flu is, it's a little more serious than the flu. But what is, what the, the, the true calamity of the past year, the true disaster, the true disease is the disproportionate over the top hysterical, I say deranged reaction to this pathogen. John Boudreaux, we've got just one minute left in this segment. And I just want to toss this question out there. I mean, I've been frankly stunned at the passivity with which my fellow Americans have have taken to this regime of being bossed around by their governors. I mean, I would not have believed this kind of sheep-like response to be possible. I, I agree completely. Uh, when I first heard about these lockdowns back in March, I thought, uh, you know, fortunately, you know, the good old American spirit is going to, you know, resist that and, 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 and it, uh, but it didn't happen. It happened in so few cases. Uh, 
people managed somehow people got scared out of their gourds and um and the, the sheepishness came out and most of our fellow americans seem to be perfectly content to be treated as lab rats in this grotesque social experiment that's now underway. Dan Brugio, let's leave it at that. Thank you very much for being on the Dan Prof Show. My pleasure. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined now by Andrea Widberg, Deputy Editor of The American Thinker. And if you're not reading The American Thinker website, you uh, you should be. Welcome to the, to the show, Andrea. Thank you. It's great to be here again. Andrea, I want to, um, in this segment, talk about a post that you wrote at The American Thinker about Rush Limbaugh. You know, his, his sad uh, passing has... Uh, has prompted this really uh, unfortunate, you know, reaction from the left. But but in, in in your post here, you talk about why it really was that liberals feared Rush Limbaugh. To, to tell our listeners about that, if you would. For starters, you have to understand that I think, like many people who are conservatives now, I started off as a Democrat. I was raised in San Francisco and was part of the San Francisco scene. My parents were Democrats. My father had been born in 1919 in Weimar, Germany. And if you were Jewish, then you were either a plutocrat, an orthodox, or a communist. And he was a communist, uh, came to America, became a Democrat, ended up voting for Ronald Reagan in 1980. Uh, so for me, as for many people on the left, becoming a conservative meant A, acknowledging we were wrong, and B, joining the evil empire, which is a very difficult thing to do when you've been told all your life that conservatives are evil. So it took me a while after I became a conservative even to find talk radio, but I'd heard good things about Rush Limbaugh, and I started listening to him, and I did what you'll read many people did, which is at first you think, wow, this guy is a blowhard. And then you think, wow, this guy is really funny. And then you think, wow, this guy is really right. And I thought a lot about why he was so powerful in being right, And a lot of it was because he shared with people his thought processes. If you're growing up, as I did on NPR, PBS, and all the alphabet soup of leftist media, they always present these neat little packages. Any news story has some facts and then analysis by people who are called expert but always lean left, followed by a conclusion that, again, in retrospect, you realize always leans left. And so you're always presented with these, like, they're, they're little leftist pills that are given to you. They are pure blue pills. And what made Rush such a brilliant red pillar was that he would explain things at length. He would walk you through the facts. He would walk you through the thought process. When you listen to Rush, you're not being intellectually cheated. You are being given the whole meal, and you can figure out whether you liked it or not at the end. So I loved Rush, and when I became a conservative, most people in my world were leftists, and they would argue with me. 
and they do these packages of information that they'd thrust at me, well, the experts say. And I kept urging them to uh, listen to Rush Limbaugh. I said, what can it hurt? If, you know, the worst that can happen is you'll disagree with him. And it became clear talking to many of them was that that was not the worst that could happen. For them, the worst that could happen wasn't that they would disagree with him, but that they would agree with him. Because once you agree with Rush, you have to acknowledge that everything you believed before was wrong. And then you have to say, am I evil? Or is it possible that conservatism is the antithesis of evil? And that is very, very frightening for those on the left. And so I wrote that up in a post in 2010 at my blog Bookworm Room. And I'd been out shopping and I came home to my inbox full of emails saying, Rush is reading your post right now which was not just one of the best days of my life as a blogger, but one of the best days of my life. Because when you have come to admire someone as much as I admired Rush, and to believe that he has the magical power of clarity and persuasion about the truth, to hear his voice reading your words is absolutely overwhelming. And it was also a very generous thing for him to do with a no-name blogger. And again, I've heard from everyone where I read that this was typical of Rush, that the bluster on air was a performance and that behind it was an incredibly kind and thoughtful man. So there's my Rush Limbaugh story and my story about leftists and Rush Limbaugh. That's a great story, Andrea. And, you know, Rush is one of the great teachers. Uh, there are so many thousands of people that he, he kind of took by the hand and led them through the thickets of public policy and politics and, and showed them the way to a better path, a, a more rational path of conservatism. And it's really great to hear from one of the many thousands of people that Rush, you know, helped to educate over, over all those years. And I know what you mean, too, about oh, yeah. being quoted by Rush on air. Every once in a while, I get emails from or texts from people, hey, Rush is quoting you on air right now. And, you know, it's a great feeling because uh, whatever your audience is as an online, you know, writer, his was bigger, right? So, so if something you oh. wrote got read on, on the radio by Rush, you knew that it was reaching lots and lots of people. He, he, he was a truly wonderful man, and, and he is just sorely we're going to go to a break, and we'll have more with Andrea Whitberg when we return. I'm doing all right, getting good grades, so bright. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are talking with Andrea Widberg, Deputy Editor of The American Thinker. And Andrea, I want to talk now about another post that, that you have written at American Thinker, and that has to do with one of the real big news stories of the last week, and that is the blow-up between Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump. And uh, it started, as it usually does, with McConnell really denouncing Trump, I think, on the floor of the Senate, and then... Trump, who, of course, is a, is a counterpuncher, right? He, he attacks the people who have attacked him, really blasted uh, Mitch McConnell. Uh, a lot of people are kind of shocked by that, frankly, including me. Uh, what, what, what's your take on this, this blow-up? Well, I suspect that the men's personal styles didn't mesh well, and I suspect that uh, Mitch McConnell got a lot of grief from his Democrat Senate colleagues and was trying to justify his own presence in the Republican Party. But I think that there's something a lot deeper going on now. 
And the idea occurred to me when someone I respect greatly said that he thinks Mitch McConnell, who is not going to run again, he's an elderly man now, he just started a six-year term, he's not looking for re-election, so he was trying to stake out a place for never-Trump conservatives so that Republicans who are hoping to run again in coming years don't have to be the ones who try to say that the Republican Party is a big Kemp. I respect that person a great deal. I also think he's wrong. I think what we're looking at is a very, very important war within the Republican Party. And a lot of people are talking about forming a third party, and I understand why, because the Washington establishment is mostly the non-Trump wing of the Republican Party. I think that's a mistake because the Republican Party has infrastructure. In this day and age, infrastructure is everything. To get together all the competing factions and belief systems who are part of the Republican Party, which means the true big tent in America, is, is not just hurting cats, it's hurting really angry cats. So Trump wisely is looking to reshape the Republican Party, and because he is a principled man and liberty-oriented, he's not doing a purge, he is setting things up for some primary fights. Primary fights are really important, and I'm aware of that because I lived in California for most of my life, and as many are aware, a few years ago, California went to open primaries, which means that the June elections are basically just election number one, with the November elections being a runoff between the two top people who won for uh, Senate or, or um, House of Representatives, uh, Representatives in any county. And because California is overwhelmingly blue, Every November, the only people on the ticket were the two Democrats. Republicans didn't make it on the ticket anymore. And so when November rolled around, there were no opposing views. You never heard from people in debates or advertisements advocating for conservative principles. Primaries are really important. People don't take them seriously. Trump is working to take them seriously, which now gets me to the Trump-McConnell schism. On either side of the schism, there are a lot of shared values. There are the values about faith. There are the values about the fact that gender is not an illusion that you can change on an hourly basis, but is a biological reality and a societal necessity. There is the belief about law and order. There is the belief about racial equality. There are a lot of things that bind both sides. What is different is that the McConnell side is what I call the internationalist side, and the Trump side is what I think of as the pro-American or Main Street side, and it boils down to two issues. One of them is the border, whether it's open or closed, and the other is China. On the Trump side, Americans matter tremendously. Trump did not want to see Americans of any color lose their jobs to low-wage illegal aliens pouring across the border. Trump did not want to see illegal drugs pouring across the border. Trump did not want to see China dominating America economically, national security, free speech. So Trump, on, on the border and China, Trump is entirely all about Americans. McConnell's side is the internationalist side. And to the extent corporations still donate at all to uh, Republicans, they're going to donate to McConnell because McConnell says, that the most important thing is to keep the money flowing. And we keep the money flowing by having cheap illegal labor come in from across the border, which lower income workers of all colors, but especially minorities, 
with which they cannot compete. We keep the money flowing by making it super easy for American corporations to dump America and go set up factories abroad, which is how we ended up with the decay of the Rust Belt. And we keep the economy going, or the money flowing, not the economy going, but the money flowing by letting China have its way with us because China provides cheap labor, including slave labor, and China has a market of 1.4 billion potential consumers. And this goes back to the article that Lee Smith wrote in the tablet, which is that the political class and the, the upper echelon economic class in America has a new loyalty to a new country, and that country is China because that's where the money is, and that's where they see their power and their future. And America essentially is a colonial outpost for them of China, where just as England used to use the colonies to have cheap labor and goods and you know, trade mercantilism that favored England, America is going to become the colony to China. And that's the Mitch side of the schism is my take. So that's where Thank I came I, I thought one of the most revealing moments of the last five years was when uh, Donald Trump started saying America first and liberals reacted as if that was some kind of a scandal. Right. I mean, I would yeah. say that that's the job description of the president of the United States. Of course, he's going to put it. Exactly. If you're not putting America first, what are you doing as president? But I, I think it's very revealing that the Democrats don't even pretend that they're putting America first. No, they don't. And, and to, to analogize America first to Deutschland über alles, which, you know, was about world domination, is insane when Trump was clearly and always speaking about taking care of his own people. And again, I keep adding of all colors because the white supremacist canard, which is falsely attached to Trump and by extension to all of us, is utterly infuriating. Well, we saw that in the results that Trump got, you know, record wages, uh, especially for minorities, record low unemployment, especially for minorities. And he got a lot of votes, you know, a lot of a lot of blacks and Hispanics, uh, could see the improvement in their own lives over the over four years, and, and a lot of them voted for him despite all of the propaganda. Andrea uh, Whitberg, that's a very incisive analysis. Really thank you for being on the Dan Prof Show, and we will be back with more after these commercial messages. Love stinks. Show.com. COVID-19 has been uh, a big problem for the United States and around the world. And I would say that the reaction to COVID-19, the shutdowns, the school closures and so forth, actually have been a bigger problem than the virus itself. But if there's a silver lining, the silver lining, I think, is that the shutdown, the needless shutdown of the public schools has really opened a lot of people's eyes to the fact that those schools are simply not serving their customers, who are, of course, uh, parents and children. And, and around the country, there have been efforts to try to get the schools to reopen because the data show that, that, that uh, students and teachers just are not at risk uh, from, uh, from COVID. And, and nevertheless, the teachers' unions have generally uh, stood firm and successfully resisted those pleas to open the schools so that our kids, for the most part, have lost a, a year of education. But there was an interesting case in, um, 
in a town uh, in Northern California where a group of school board members were talking about parents trying to get the schools to reopen, and they didn't realize that they were on open mic. And for about eight minutes, they talked about this and said what they really think. And I think it was a really revealing glimpse into public school education in the United States. This is from a news story on what happened. A Northern California school board discussed ways to limit the public's ability to speak at meetings and and mocked parents who desperately want schools to reopen. They want their babysitters back, one of the trustees of Oakley Union Elementary School District told her colleagues during a pre-meeting session that they believed was not open to the public. Another school board member, I can't even say this on the air. That's how bad it is. Another school member, school board member, described an interaction that she had with some frustrated parents. And then she described her own reaction to talking with the parents. And she starts, a word that starts with B and rhymes with rich, comma, if you are going to call me out, I am going to F you up. That's unbelievable, talking about the parents of kids in in the school district where she's on the school board. And then another school board member theorized that parents want their kids to go back to school so they can spend their day getting high. (laughs) So that's, that's what the members of this school board think about the parents who want teachers and administrators to do their jobs, reopen the schools, get the kids back in school where they belong. And and we're seeing things like this, not usually this colorful, but we're seeing the same phenomenon all across the country where the teachers unions in particular are just refusing to allow the schools to reopen. And uh, the effect on our young people has been disastrous. Parents have seen that all across the country. And and I think if there's a silver lining to the COVID epidemic and to the, the, the measures that have been taken uh, allegedly to combat the, the COVID epidemic, like the closure of the public schools, I think if there's a silver lining to all of that, it, it lies in the fact that the, the public school system and particularly the role of the teachers' unions in that school system have really been exposed. And I think there's a chance that could bring about some real change in the years This is the Dan Proft Show.